welcome the lecture given to the adult education class on Sunday, December 16, 1990, by the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral, Houston, the very Reverend J. Pittman McGehee. The title of Dean McGehee's lecture given in the Great Hall at the Cathedral is Christmas Spirit. At the conclusion of the lecture, please fast forward the tape to the end. My mother used to talk about the Christmas spirit. It was as if it was a question that uh, was a part of the rehearsal of the preparation for Christmas, and that is, have you got the Christmas spirit yet? She used to ask that of my brother and me and of my father, and I had this growing sense that one of the requirements for Christmas was to get the Christmas spirit. And I realized that it was an interesting, elusive sort of reality because it wasn't intangible. How do you get it? Where do you get it? How do you know if you have it? She left it sufficiently mysterious and intangible that I never knew when I'd really gotten the Christmas spirit until, uh, you know, every year at some point in the process, I would feel a sense of what I could only describe now, I wouldn't have then, but a sense of joy. But I knew I couldn't force it, I could only be available to it, and there was something about the working within the question, have you got the Christmas spirit, that was a prerequisite to somehow getting it. Now, what I now know is that there is within the human soul or psyche, those terms again being synonymous, the sense of energy. And that there is in, within one's own consciousness a sense of energy, but there must be in the collective consciousness energy that's not unlike that that's in the individual consciousness. And at this time of year, you begin to get a lot of energy focused on Christmas, whatever that means. Now, within the experience and theory of opposites, even that fancy word, inachiodromia, which really means that each, each pole holds its opposite within it, that there is a sense that if there is so much energy rushing toward joy, that there must be um, an equal and opposite reaction going on. Now with this sort of requirement from the maternal or the parental voice that joy must be present, a Christmas spirit, then there must be a contradictory move of energy toward the opposite of joy, which is despair. If there is at this time of year a movement as there is in me toward the ideal and the romantic, 
there must be a counterbalance going on somewhere, somehow, which leads us to the cynical. I think with any honesty, one must admit that somehow both of those get paired within us at this time of year, and some get overwhelmed uh, most noticeably by the despair or the cynicism at this time of year. All of us know, I think, by our own experience, uh, by hearing of the experience of others or by professional experience, that this time of year is the most depressing time of year. More people are depressed. There is more chaos uh, within the human psyche and family. And more suicides following Christmas than any other time of year. Have you got the Christmas spirit yet? <laughs> I've seen both sides now. And I would posit as a, a thought about that the true meaning of Christmas, as if I would presume to be the revelation of truth. But it seems to me, as one journeyer and struggler, that the true meaning of Christmas is not either in the joy or the despair. That it's in the transcendence of those opposites. That's where the truth, it seems to me, to lie. Now let's look at both sides now. It's easier for me, and I've spent much more of my life and career looking at only one side of things than I have at both sides of things. Number one, it feels better to look at those things that feel better. It also plays better in public to look at those things that feel good and make one warm than it is to look into the darkness or into those things that chill us. But I've looked at both sides now and feel some responsibility to say that what Christianity at this time of year has tended to do is to cut out the other side. And if we're cutting out the other side, we're cutting out, in rough terms, one half of ourselves and one half of the world. And that's those who don't feel particularly joyful, don't feel uh, particularly loved, don't feel particularly warm, don't feel particularly romantic, don't feel like they belong anywhere, and don't feel that Christmas has come. Who speaks about them? Who speaks for them? Who speaks with them? It's easier for me, and I, as I said, spent most of my life and career focusing on the one side. I have images of that, wonderful images of that. Images that make Garrison Keillor seem mute. <laughs> my mother really did 
read the Christmas story to my brother and me in a rocking chair in front of the fire. She would get my brother and me together sometime around this time of year. Now remember it was a large children's Bible with sort of those Victorian pictures. The kind of pages that the first letter of the first word of the first paragraph was half a page large with lots of gold squiggly kinds of lines. And she would open the book and we would sit at her feet and she would read us the Christmas story before a fire. It's true. I have that image within me. It warms my heart. It makes me feel sentimental and romantic about the hearing of the words and the sort of interesting comedy of those words as you listened to them. Well, there were things like the cattle lowing. <laughs> what in the world <laughs> did that mean? And images of cattle lowing. You know, it was like the round to John Virgin from... <laughs> the image of this round John Virgin. <laughs> Have you ever been sore? Afraid? They were sore. Afraid. At school, we had great preparations for Christmas. Miss Weaver, the sort of paradigm of authority, shrill voice, everything done by the numbers as if we were recruits in a marine platoon. You remember her? First grade teacher. <laughs> Purple hair, orthopedic shoes. <laughs> One of our projects was <clears throat> to take milk bottle caps and make bells for the Christmas tree. The Meadowgold milkman delivered milk to our back doorstep. I bet Garrison Keeler never got milk delivered to his back doorstep in reality. I did. And the distinguishing factor on the different bottles of milk was the different color of bottle cap. These were tinfoil bottle caps put on these bottles of milk delivered by the Medigold milkman at our back step five o'clock every morning. Miss Weaver told us to save those tinfoil bottle caps. And so the instructions were to gently remove them rather than rip them off and save them and bring them to class. So, 
we saved them. And the morning that we were supposed to take them to class, we couldn't find them. I didn't have any bottle caps to take, and Miss Weaver was waiting there <laughs> at the front of the room with a ruler. It's an image. <laughs> you talk about being sore afraid. My <laughs> mother, who was full of the Christmas spirit, said, don't worry about it. She'll have plenty. There'll be plenty. My brother, who was always sort of the opposite voice, said, no, there won't. And she's going to kill you. I began to get a sense of what the cattle must feel like <laughs> as they, as they low. When I got to school that morning, sore afraid, my best friend, John Eubanks, was there. He had a, enough bottle caps uh, to meet the entire Korean War effort. <laughs> I mean, he had huge sacks full of neatly removed green, gold, and red tinfoil bottle caps. He gave me a sack full. Grace. <laughs> Until we got in class and the instructions came down from Ms. Weaver and what we had to do was to take these bottle caps, a pair of scissors, sitting in our desks with writing arms, still had the ink wells in them. And we were to take these bottle caps and these snub-nosed scissors and cut right down the middle of the bottle cap to the center. And then take a piece of yarn, tie a knot in the end, fashion it in the slit in this tinfoil bottle cap, pull it taut, and then mercifully move the bottle cap around till it formed a conical shape. And it looked like a Christmas bell. Okay, when I was five years old in the first grade, I didn't go to kindergarten. They didn't have kindergartens in Drumright, Oklahoma. And I went to school early because I had a early or late birthday, depending on how you look at it. I also looked a lot like Baby Huey. <laughs> that is, I was so much larger than most of the kids in my class. And even at age five, I had huge hands, and they never fit in those little snub-nosed scissors. <laughs> Plus, having been given no nonverbal artistic ability. 
And so here I was with these huge hands and these little bitty scissors and these tinfoil bottle caps trying to cut just to the center. There was no way. Except John Eubanks could do that. You remember him, his dad called him Cheesy. We all did. Cheesy Eubanks could do that in a minute. He just snipped them, just like that. Not only did he provide for me enough tinfoil uh, to float a battleship, he also made that cut for me each time, because Weaver never knew the difference. Every time I think about Christmas and Christmas trees and decorations, I think of Cheesy Eubanks and the grace of him to provide for me the material uh, for the Christmas tree, but also the labor. Another image I have is that every year at the little Methodist church we attended, they had a Christmas pageant. <clears throat> for those of you who have read A Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, you might want to go back and read that section on the Christmas pageant. Our Christmas pageant was always um, a great production with very, very little produce. <laughs> Which is to say that it all got confused for me somehow. We had the sort of typical bathrobe, um, cotton beard, a bath towel on your head, um, plastic baby Christmas pageant. But in addition to that, we had it right in the middle of Santa Claus coming. <laughs> I mean, this is small town America at its best. You remember those of you who are reading your foreword day by day, um, <laughs> don't, don't raise your hands. <laughs> A confession I made, I think, publicly was that when I was asked to write that foreword day by day, I'd never read one. <laughs> And drum right at the parade, the Christmas parade, this is uh, the great American confusion. They would have a float. They had a huge float that was a birthday cake. On the side, it said, Happy Birthday, Jesus. Huge float, big birthday cake. You know, crepe paper and tissue. And out of the birthday cake jumped Santa Claus. <laughs> Somebody described to me a Christmas pageant that's held here every year in this town. I said, what's it about? What's it like? He said, well, it's like taking Christmas, Easter, and the Fourth of July and putting it in a wearing blender. <laughs> That's sort of what my Christmases were like in that small town, was mixing up Santa Claus and, and baby Jesus, and I never could quite, I don't know that I've ever quite gotten them sorted out. 
And so here we would have uh, a way in the manger and we would have round John Virgin <laughs> and O little town of Bethlehem and then having done that Santa Claus would come looking walking sounding like old man Betts <laughs> I don't know that I ever knew his name I don't think he was christened that but that's all we ever knew was old man Betts old man Betts was the church sexton he had retired from the Tidewater refinery and his job was to take care of this little church as its sexton. Old man Betts was mean as hell. He used to run the kids out of the kitchen, I remember, on Sunday morning. He would always seem to be scowling and mad. They kept him around because he was handy. My guess is he could take those scissors and clip that <laughs> in a second. So Santa Claus would come in the midst of this away in the manger. The cattle were lowing. I was sore afraid. And here would come in the midst of this Christmas scene, old man Betts. And I remember when he came, uh, it would be right after we had sung O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's a wonderful poem. Uh, all of us who graduated from the Virginia Seminary love this hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It was written by Phillips Brooks when he was a student at the Virginia Seminary um, and later became the rector of Trinity Church, Boston, and then Bishop of Massachusetts. Phillips Brooks, one of the great preachers in all the history of Anglicanism and American Protestantism. And he wrote it whilst during Advent sitting in the tower at Aspinwall overlooking Washington, D.C. And so it has its own sense of place for me because that's, I have stood in Aspinwall looking down on our nation's capital being romantic about O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes and fears. What do we have, what's the other side of this? I mean, in that nostalgic picture of the Madonna with her two children reading the Christmas story before the light, when in fact uh, my father was not there, he was absent. And my mother's desire for the Christmas spirit was an overcompensation from a chronic depression that she suffered every year at that time. Her own sense of loneliness and inauthenticity, sort of grasping uh, at 
this deep need she had to feel some joy. Have you got the Christmas spirit yet? It was not a question that she was asking of me, but it was an echo of her own sense of wanting some emptiness filled. Now, that's a romantic scene, is it not? A poor one-parent mother with father out traveling, trying to earn together about $3,800 a year, living in a two-bedroom rent house, one automobile. My mother never learned to drive until after I graduated from high school. I mean, the romantic scene has its fears within it, the sense of inauthenticity and inadequacy. I wonder what she felt when she read about this perfect, holy family of Mary and Joseph and gentle Jesus. All the hopes and then all the fears of our family was imperfect. And there was loneliness, and there was sadness, and there was depression, and there was despair. Who speaks about that this time of year? Who understands the labor pain of Advent? And who among us will take that place and speak that voice? We don't even hear John the Baptist in the wilderness. That's not allowable in church, in Christianity, in this culture. We only talk about exciting things, not depressing things. If you're depressed, you don't belong here, is the message we've given to one another. If you don't feel the Christmas spirit, then you don't belong. How many people through the years have we cut out by not telling the whole truth, by not confessing publicly of our own fears as well as hopes? Who among us is not judged by this holy family, reinforced with this image of the ideal family and what they must be and what they must look like, and none of us being a member of the holy family? Jesus Eubank's father beat him. Some of you have heard me tell the story before, but one day at school, Cheesy Eubanks, when we were dressing to go to gym class, took his shirt off to see huge red welts on his back because his father beat him with a razor strap. And so the one who brought me grace was one who bore stripes on his back. That's a romantic story of the grace of Cheesy Eubanks but the one who brings the gift is the one who is deeply wounded. You do know, if you haven't guessed, that old man Betts was an alcoholic. A man addicted to alcohol and had been fired at the Tidewater refinery and only by the grace of that little Methodist church that had given him something to do between his episodic drunks. Now, where's the place for that? And we talk about that. It's so much easier for me, and I've made a living uh, talking about sitting with mother and child before the fire, making ornaments for the tree. 
a wonderful old man Betts who comes in to the little town of Bethlehem. But part of the Advent reality is that somebody's got to speak about the other side because we're leaving half the world out and half of ourselves out if we don't speak that truth. Have you got the Christmas spirit yet? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Here are the fears. Here are the realities. Here's the other side. When my father died in July and we cleaned out his closet, I recommend it for everybody as a part of the grief work that when you have a significant other a primary relationship die that you go clean the closet out yourself. I remember when I was somewhere around eight or nine I'd gone through another pair of shoes and my father took me into his closet and showed me a pair of shoes and he said I've had these shoes for ten years and I haven't worn them out you need to take better care of your shoes. In July I threw those shoes away. Same pair of shoes. It was amazing to me the number of things that were in his closet that we or I had given him much of the time for Christmas. You realize, of course, that I'm not unusual, but that Madonna and child scene of mother with children at lap reading the sacred story is only a memory. It is not a reality. Out of that scene, somebody's missing now. The sadness and the reality for all of us about the nostalgia, nostalgia is the pain of memory, is that we can't hold on to any of those people. They just somehow slip away. The absentee father is gone for good now. And the Madonna is the Pieta. The pain of the mother whose children leave. And the pain of the child whose mother dies. Who's going to speak about that this time of year? Who's going to give you permission to look not just at the crash in the little town of Bethlehem, but look at the Pieta where the mother holds the wounded son in her lap. That's a part of the story just as important and just as primary as the warm birth at Bethlehem. These stories are blessings. This child born to Mary was a blessing that lacerated her heart. There is this other side, the hopes and fears. One priest in one place, in one generation, is willing to give you permission to look at both sides and to say that that dark side, that depressed side, that despairing side has a place here in the same way that the labor pain has a place in the birth, 
and the death of Good Friday has a place in the joyful resurrection. You can bring that all in here. This is not a place that says you have to act like you're happy in order to be acceptable. This is a place that will take all of it. Now, it seems to me that the Christmas joy, then, is not just the hope, or not just the fear, but it's keeping those two in the same place. Two images occur. One is that you weave them together to make a rope. And the word hope has as its basis things twined together. And saying that one of those will feed the other, that both will be in the same place. The second image I have is that that, that sense of tension between those two poles is the truth. Neither are the truth. I mean, not just the despair or the darkness. I can't stand over here and only give that voice. But I can't stand over here and just give the voice of joy and white Christmas either. To give a place for both. But if you do that and create that tension between the poles, it is a musical string on which you can play something creative. That Christmas really is about that place that we are taken when we allow both voices to be heard. There is a transcendent reality. There is something beyond either of those. And keeping the place of the voice of both is very, very important. It's not appropriate to be just happy at Christmas, nor is it appropriate to be just depressed. Appropriate to sort of weave those together and see that one informs the other, one enables the other, and that there's no needed to no need to be unbalanced. I think the only thing worse than somebody depressed at Christmas is somebody happy. <laughs> Equally as unbalanced weave them together in the same place and something more substantial than either will emerge when both are integrated. Something more substantial than either will emerge when both are integrated. Something will transcend. Now having said all of that, then I believe that what Christmas is all about, or the truth, is just in the simple metaphor of the birth. That this archetypal story that welled up out of the consciousness of a people, that the birth metaphor is just about all we can say. That the agony and the ecstasy are going to be found in the same place. Don't deny either because one informs the other.
And so we will, within the next few days, and with one more Sunday, live through another cycle of life, and that will inform your own life. Now, what I've given you is just information about mine, as honestly as I can. That this life cycle rehearsed will inform you about your life and that information you'll have to arrive at for yourself. The little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting life. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Amen.